Now, interestingly, you might not know that um, although innovation is the king of buzzwords that we know it today, it wasn't always a compliment. And um, actually, back in the day, this is probably going back six or seven hundred years, if uh, Wikipedia is at all accurate. Um, it was actually an accusation to be called an innovator. So the, the thing to have been called at the time was an inventor. And being called an innovator was actually akin to charges of heresy. But fast forward to today, we have innovation. It's the mantra of business leaders. It's a requirement for survival, and it's the only way to succeed in the business world today. But the question is, how does innovation actually play with these other two kids called risk management and corporate governance? The first reaction of many out there would be to say that they don't play well together, that corporate governance and risk management actually slows down the innovation process. But is that correct? So Primal Bhima, who's sitting here on my left, will be presenting to us today, and he asked himself the exact same question. And to help him answer that question, he actually spent time with some of the best um, and most famous innovators in the world, and he'll share a bit about that later on. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce him. So Primal um, works at Liberty. Um, he's got a history, and this topic was actually born out of work history. He used to work in product uh, development, so the strong element of innovation coming through there. But also spent some time in ERM, and so that gave him that sort of balanced view and made him ask the question. Uh, Primal is a FASA, a CIRA, and last year he completed his MBA at Gibbs. Um, so without further ado, please, Primal, welcome to the stage. We're keen to hear from you. Thank, thank you, Vickers. South Africa is known for having some amazing institutions within, um, within the country. I'm sure as many of you were traveling today to come to Santon, this would look familiar in a, in a skyline. Um, and did you know that Santon is the richest square mile on the African continent? Um, we have such amazing institutions where entrepreneurs have started up something in South Africa, and this has actually grown, grown to international proportions. Within those buildings, it would house typically, you know, thousands of different employees. Um, you know, there could be some familiar buildings that you might even be working for um, as you're walking in today. And last year, I also had the privilege of traveling to San Francisco and Seattle to visit some of the most innovative companies in, on the globe. Um, and to be quite honest, I was actually quite disappointed when I got to the likes of Google and Facebook. Um, not because those companies aren't amazing, but I was just expecting to see some iconic buildings there. And when I, when I got there, it literally looked like I was going to a campus. Um, you know, in the, in the bottom, in the bottom um, corner, they have uh, in Facebook a place called the hacker, sta uh, like the hacker Station where they would huddle in the mornings together. Or, or even Facebook would have, um, you know, like a, like a section where they would just have bicycle repairs. Um, and similarly in Google, the energy pod is a real thing. You know, they do actually give people, um, they do actually give people free lunches um, as, you, as you go there. And then I've also taken some photos where some people are just playing arcade games. So, you know, this, these, these, these places just seem quite different to our organizations in South Africa. But that's, that got me thinking, what made these organizations so innovative and so different? 
you know, was it the way that they structured, um, i.e. in like a campus, in, in a campus type of world, you can kind of imagine quite segregated, segregated um, different buildings, but not this one huge building that would house everyone. Or was it because, you know, the people that they hire are just so different to anywhere else? Um, could it be the other leisure times or, you know, like the times that they, that they have to make it fun for their employees? And this really got me thinking about this topic of innovation. And when I started looking at it, on the one hand, most people recognize that innovation is all about reward taking. Um, and even from an academic perspective, that came out quite strongly. People much rather focused on the reward side of one, a side of innovation. But on the other hand, innovation also means that you have to take risks. And these actually are inextricably linked to each other. In our current world, we actually recognize that innovation is an important driver of growth. And virtually all organizations pursue it in order to remain competitive. But corporate leaders now no longer question whether it is necessary to innovate, but rather which activities to pursue. And this is so important because innovation, uh, activities of, of innovation has such high failure rates that range between 50 to 90%. So if you just think about that, so many of these initiatives that we launch actually end up in failure. And that's why it's so important to understand this link between innovation and risk management. And are they on separate, separate parts or do they actually come together? I think as typical actuarial staff or you know, actuaries working in the profession, it's a little bit more natural because we you know, would no normally take on more risk in order to, to get more reward. Um, but the important thing is that this tension does need to be managed. And the key challenge is how do you manage this, this um, uncertainty? So through this presentation, I'm going to take you through um, different sections. I'm going to initially start with the methodology. Then I'm going to go through the innovation process. Um, and this is a simplified version of it. As, and then moving on to the, the, the concepts of risk management and governance. Finally, looking at some of the um, challenges and obstacles that would face innovation. And then the contextual attributes in terms of your structures, your resources, and the culture of that organization. And lastly, I will also end with an innovation management model. So in terms of the, the methodology, I got to interview some, some, some really uh, amazing companies within, within South Africa. And the study was based on a qualitative, um, on qualitative research, so an exploratory research method was used um, based on face-to-face -face interviews that was, that was semi-structured. Uh, I also looked at innovation across multiple industries. Um, this was largely weighted towards financial services, be it banking and insurers, but also another, uh, uh, another distribution, uh, you know, a different distribution in terms of petroleum companies, technology, consumer goods, and industrial. So this tried to get quite a broad representation of innovation. And I also didn't define innovation specifically to, to, a, to a particular type of innovation. So this could include anything from incremental innovation all the way through to disruptive innovation. Also, as part of this, I needed to interview people that could have sight of both spectrums of risk management and, um, 
uh, you know, product development or innovation. And this would typically tend to be quite um, senior leaders within the organization that could speak to both elements. So, so I, uh, the, the majority of this tended to be executives, and this included um, some of your C-suite or chief executive officers of um, some of the companies. It could also include managing directors or other executives, all the way through to senior experts of their field. Also, it only focused on large organizations, because this, this is really where you would tend to find um, you know, this tension that would, would, would exist. I think in smaller organizations, um, you know, they, don't, they, don't, they don't have as developed um, risk management capabilities or um, you know, have to go through as stringent corporate, corporate governance um, you know, that some of our listed entities would be required to. Also, as part of this, I would also have to state that for the purposes of confidentiality, um, this was done as a research paper at the Gordon Institute of Business Science last year. Um, and I, and as, as a result, this represents an aggregated views of um, what participants have said uh, through, through the research. So I won't be giving any particular information that would name out any particular companies. Moving on to the innovation process, so the modern innovation process is not an isolated incident, but rather it should be regarded as a learning process, where the returns generated from these initiatives are highly uncertain and cannot be determined in advance. And it's important because uncertainty and innovation management are closely related to, to each other, where these initiatives would typically tend to run more smoothly where these uncertainties are better managed. And there's two types of uncertainties. The first one is productive uncertainty, where the learning process is potentially unsuccessful um, and the organization has to make an investment in res resources before they actually could generate um, future returns. And the second one would be competitive un uncertainty. So despite the fact that, um, despite the fact that you know, your, your initiative is successful, um, you didn't actually, you didn't actually um, uh, another competitor would have had a more successful alternative innovation path that would, um, you know, that would be better than, than what, what, you, what you have. And moving on, the model at the bottom would represent a simplified innovation process. And typically it would be based on a stage gate approach. Now the stage gate approach in, from an academic perspective has also largely been theorized to mention that you know, it could be obsolete or largely redundant because it would be quite a parallel process. But it does, and it doesn't take into account that as you're going through an innovation process, you know, you could be running multiple things in parallel. You could be dealing with multiple stakeholders. Um, you need to be running initiatives to make sure that you actually reach your goal in time. But when, when, when after interviewing much of the, of the experts in the field, um, most of them tended to describe this process as a stage gate process. And the main reason for that is because it's easy to conceptualize um, one. And the second thing, it's also, it also allows for um, you know, iterative feedback as you're going through the different stages. So while it might not necessarily represent reality accurately, um, it does give you a sense of which path are you in, are you in your um, 
you know, which part of the process are you in, and you can then change your, your decision making as you're going through it. The next slide represents a, a high level word count, um, a, a high level word cloud of the different words that appeared um, for from the respondents um, when we when we were when we were looking at, at at the innovation process, and we split them between between organisations that were highly innovative to those with a low perceived level of innovation, and and what what comes as no surprise is that innovation was, um, you know, the biggest word that most most of them talked about, um, and you know this is a key focus because all of these firms want to keep on um, remaining innovative. What was interesting is that your highly innovative firms tended to describe risk far more often than firms with a low perceived level of innovation. Similarly, firms with a low level of perceived innovation tended to focus a lot more and describe governance rather than firms with a high level of, of innovation. And we're going to start unpacking this in a little bit more detail as we go through this presentation. But I think the key thing that you need to that you need to remember out of this slide is you wouldn't necessarily think that a highly innovative firm would focus that much on risk, um, uh, as as uh, you know initially when you when you're talking about innovation, because you would normally just assume that you know they're trying to they're trying to get the most successful um, initiative possible. As we then move into the ideation process of innovation, ideation is believed to be the relatively easy 10% of where an innovation efforts are spent on. And this is really seen as a starting process. Um, this is really seen as a starting point within the innovation process. Um, at this point, it makes quite clear sense that there shouldn't be any, any um, restrictions at this stage because you really don't want to kill an innovative idea before it's, through an intensive screening process before it even started, which suggests that there that they should possibly be limited risk management and governance at this stage of the process. One of the respondents actually mentioned, um, and, and I'm, I'm going to read this as a quote, Getting ideas is not necessarily the best way to approach innovation because sometimes you're just putting lipstick on a pig, as they would call it, because you are solving for something that is wrong in the first place. So why make it better? So that's why we've gone back to understanding what is the pain of the customers and solving for that. It's always got to tie back to the problem in the customer's eyes an unmet need, or requirement, or desire. And, and when we started looking at the different sources um, of where ideas can come from, customers came up frequently uh, through, through a number of the respondents. They described that as improving their, you know, customers can provide their knowledge, advice, and skills in order to improve the product or service that you're trying to deliver. Also, there should be feedback that you should validate with your customers. Different respondents also had different views. So for example, I mean, even if you look at the likes of um, Apple versus Google, um, Google would typically rely on open source um, you know, type of infrastructure through Android, whereas um, Apple is quite a closed ecosystem. 
But also, uh, when you start looking at, at uh, you know, validating with your customers, um, another example that stood out from one of the respondents was, if you had to ask, um, you know, back in the days when there wasn't any cars or motorbikes and people were traveling on horses, if you had to ask customers what they wanted, they would probably say, please give me a faster horse. Um, and, you know, the, the, the clear thing is you need to understand what is the issue that you're trying to solve, not necessarily just getting the feedback. The important thing is to spend that extensive time with your customers and understand those customer issues. What are the value gaps? What are the other gaps that you're trying to solve for? One of the organizations in the technology space also described themselves as, you know, the massive part of their business is around client feedback. They went as far as describing themselves as a relationship-driven business. And this is so important in, in, you know, the current world that we're living in. Other research, other ideation sources also included brainstorming sessions, which would be quite a common, a common method of, of um, ideation. And this is typically dealt with, um, you know, people would describe it as blue sky thinking, um, allowing for, for, for giving constructive feedback out of those sessions um, and constructive criticism or, you know, writing on whiteboards, for example. Other, other ideation sources could come through from your market research. So this is when you start tracking and monitoring your, um, your product's performance relative to the market. Um, also, also uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people have also been, been recently describing co-creation. And this is also where you would partner with many other organizations. Um, one, of, one, of the, one of the organizations which I thought was quite interesting, they actually said that they don't do any of the innovation in-house. They rely solely on their partners to do it for them. Um, they come up with the ideas and they need to drive the process, the innovation process externally and finally bring it in. And last but not least, you can also innovate through your, your processes. So this would be an assessment of your, of your process, you know, possibly monitoring the profitability of it and the commerciality of that product. Moving then onto, onto the implementation. Now, most people would recognize that, you know, uh, an, an idea only remains an idea. So, you know, it's, innovation is much more than, than that. And this is where implementation lies at the heart of the innovation process. At this point, it's usually where you would have to put in far more resources, both in terms of capital, people, time, um, in order to get, to get, get something going and, and off the ground. In, also, a lot, of, a lot of respondents describe that in this phase of the process, it would typically be where your business case has been developed in order to implement an idea. Also, the process becomes more stringent with far more rigorous um, risk management and governance and controls that are put in at this point of the process. The implementation phase also typically involves a lot more different stakeholders. Um, one of the highly, highly, highly um, innovative companies actually described having a, systemic, a systematic approach to, to stakeholder management. So initially during the, the um, ideation phase, they would include quite a, few, quite a limited number of key stakeholders. But as you start going through the process, you would start including 
um, more and more stakeholders in order to get buy-in. And a key thing is to get that communication and um, you know, you know that, that, that engagement and stakeholder support as you're undergoing an, an innovation initiative. Also within this process, there should be constant monitoring. And common impediments to this process typically include not having enough capital resources or process constraints. When moving on to the evaluation phase, so this would typically uh, be how you would monitor and manage your, your innovation performance. It should run across the entire chain of the, of the innovation process where there could possibly be multiple decision-making points. So as I mentioned, um, you know, typically we would think about it in a stage-gate approach, but you should be evaluating any of your decisions on an ongoing basis throughout that journey. Um, and when looking at this, I'm going to spend a little bit, a little bit of time explaining, explaining this graph. Um, when, we, when, we went through the, when we went through this research, effectively the, the entire, the entire um, interview was transcribed and then it got loaded into a qualitative um, uh, assessment tool. And with that, it, we looked at you know, how much time have people been spending discussing evaluation. Now the percentages might, might seem small, but effectively gives a sense of the percentage word count that you know, highly innovative firms would have spent uh, discussing evaluation compared to low innovation firms. And it's almost double the amount of time was spent um, on evaluation, which means that your highly innovative firms really are you know, monitoring and managing their innovation performance. Also, when we started looking at the um, evaluation criteria, it was strongly associated with a quantitative nature. And this would typically include like returns or returns on investment or capital employed or the bottom line. Um, whereas some others have also had a, a more nuanced approach by recognizing both quantitative and qualitative aspects. Uh, and this could be, this includes social, cultural, and environmental implications. Half of the respondents, or 50%, actually described using both um, quantitative and qualitative aspects when, when evaluating innovation. When we started looking at the quantitative dimension, so typically they would have descri described um, returns. As I mentioned, this could be return on equity, return on capital employed. Um, but this was a mechanism in which it allowed organizations to prioritize their innovation efforts. Um, so generally to allow uh, to allocate resources to initiatives that would generate the highest returns. They also described other income, income statement metrics, um, looking at sales or earnings as well as profitability, also looking at balance sheet metrics. Um, so for example, one, one respondent described increasing their market share or tracking the adoption rate of customers. What was interesting for me when we went back to the ideation phase, in the ideation sources, so many respondents talked about their customers, but very few um, people, when, they, when we started looking at evaluation, uh, looked at customer-centric um, measures. So, for example, looking at net promoter scores or, uh, you know, the number of call center, call center um, complaints that you're getting or customer satisfaction. And the key thing is this feedback is so vital because 
as, when a customer actually is telling you something that you don't want to hear, they're taking time out of their day to call you to complain, um, and it might not sound, uh, uh, you know, like the most, uh, most glamorous thing, but the key thing is you are actually getting that feedback where a customer is hoping that as an organization you will start improving your processes and um, how you service them. From a qualitative perspective, uh, some, some respondents discuss the impact that innovation would have on stakeholders and especially on the customer in this circumstance, but they have also described some other stakeholders and this could include your employees, it could include your partners or advisors um, or even you know, society in general. Two respondents also dis described using innovation as a learning opportunity in the in the evaluation criteria for, for um, innovation. Um, and this also seemed to be quite closely linked to the culture of the organization. Others then described ensuring that it must have some strategic alignment, and this also touched on aspects related to the brand of the organization and the brand value and how you can actually gain efficiencies um, through any of your initiatives. And then finally, the other respondents then described either social implications, um, you know, the organization health, that, the, the impact it would have to the organizational health. Um, in, in some of them, it was also, you know, safety was, was quite a big concern for, that, for them, as well as what their perception would be or reputation in the market. Now that I have described the innovation process, I'm now going to touch on the risk management and governance um, side of, of this. So it is often recognized that introducing an innovation changes the trade-off between, between risk and return, where risks are accepted in order to gain, in order to gain an associated reward. But to reduce these, the inherent and residual risks, Organizations and their leaders need to understand how to make informed, rational decisions in relation to innovation. While the consequences of an innovation seems perfectly clear in hindsight, um, when you have to make those decisions, it's often very difficult to predict what needs to, be ha what needs to happen in advance. Therefore it, is very therefore, it is necessary to accept and manage these risks and consequences of it. And this is why risk is such a central component of innovation, um, even though it might not necessarily be explicitly, explicitly managed. When we then look at corporate governance, this really deals with uh, mechanisms, um, with coordination and incentives. And, and the corporate governance theory really really talks about how it really must come to terms with innovation in terms of how you would diffuse processes, um, you know, the management structures and ownership, as well as, as, well as um, you know, the relationships and collaboration that you're trying to create from both internal and external sources of knowledge. Again, when we started looking at the share of voice of governance, um, you would tend, when we started looking at how often people spoke about governance, your, your low innovation firms spent far more time describing um, governance compared to your, high, your, your, high, your highly innovative firms. Remember, I went through semi-structured interviews, so I wasn't prescriptive of how much time someone should spend talking on these, but this represents an aggregated view across all of the different respondents. When we started looking at decision-making, 
Um, most, most organizations tend to use a mixed method of decision making, and this would incorporate both data, data uh, both a data-driven approach as well as a perception-driven approach. Um, most organizations would typically tend to, to make the decisions around data, but it also recognizes that sometimes you have to still make an interview, uh, still make a decision without having all of the necessary data. Um, or, you know, for example, you have to respond before any of your other competitors have to respond. And then you would tend to rely on in your intuition, your gut, um, your perceptions or beliefs within, within that. But, but few you know, few organizations solely relied on only making, making decisions on data or solely relied on only making decisions on perceptions. Um, what, was also, what was also different is some, some of the organizations were founder-led, which did have a different, um, you know, different decision-making process in terms of you know, it was largely influenced by the views of the founder of, the, of those organizations. Um, and for belief, for, for um, perception or belief-driven organizations, what, what clearly came out is you have to be very effective at communicating your ideas um, and getting that buy-in from a vast, vast variety of different stakeholders. And finally, for organizations that made decisions using both of them, um, you, you know, one of the one of the respondents actually actually mentioned um, this, and I quote: "To escalate all decisions could be very stifling. There should be room for decision making at the levels where the decision can be made. The lower down the hierarchy decisions are made, the better normally." In addition, these organisations would also be aware of excessive perceived risks that they face, and they would also kill quickly any negative perceived risk through quick decision-making. Again, also most respondents gave um, you know, strong confidence that the organization had diverse representation, not only in terms of skill sets, but also in terms of different cultures in their decision-making bodies, which allowed for you know, certain key, um, you know, which allowed for different opinions as, as a decision, decision is being made. When looking at risk management and governance, so I'm not going to focus too much on, on the diagram on your, on your right, um, which, which I will discuss in a lot more in, in, in some detail. But traditionally, it was argued that management control systems could significantly impede creativity and innovation. More recently, there's actually a growing consensus um, you know, that it plays a fundamental role in innovation management, and especially in organizations where it uses these formal controls in a collaborative and facilitative manner. And this dynamic tension is really created through a, you know, a blended use of um, a, a risk control system. Now, you get different types of risk control systems, um, the main ones being diagnostic ones that most of us are familiar with that's created either through budgets or limits um, or controls based on delegation of authority. An interactive control system would be an information system used by leaders um, you know, that, would, that would really encourage them through their direct involvement in the innovation process. And then you finally have belief and boundary control systems. Now, belief control systems would tend to set the vision and direction of the organization, whereas your boundary system would set the um, no-go zones or akin to like a risk appetite approach. 
Um, but within this, as, as I mentioned, uh, the, 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 the diagram on the right, this represents all the co-occurring codes or words um, when we started discussing um, risk management and governance. What other words were people describing within those sentences? And what came across is, is risk management and governance was largely associated with either the implementation and evaluation phase rather than the ideation phase, but also they describe, describe some softer aspects related to the culture of the organization, holding people accountable, and setting, setting, setting the direction. Which alludes, which alludes to the fact that risk management should also consider less rigid dimensions through its assessments and analyses. Now, now looking at the different views of, of risk management, a number of respondents had quite positive views about risk management and governance. They said, you know, this could actually be part of best practice where, you know, you have some of, some of you know, the best tools available. Um, and, and also you could use, utilize this risk management as a wealth creation process in the sense that, you know, you, it's an opportunity to make innovation a reality. Others had, other respondents also described, you know, a negative view or perception towards risk management and governance, um, saying that it would either constrain or stifle the innovation process. Um, you know, one, one person argued that, you know, risk management and governance can actually be used by, by people within the organization um, to pass blame or, you know, prevent duties from, from being completed in the sense that I can't get along with my task because of the process that needs to be followed. Um, uh, again, you know, it, it could be as a defense mechanism to divert blame. But more often than not, uh, I'm advocating that there actually should be a balanced approach or balanced view to risk management, because this really recognizes that you have to take risks in order to be innovative. And this is encouraged either through partnerships or to better manage your innovation process. And a main obstacle that is identified is how you actually deal with this risk and that uncertainty, especially in a much faster paced environment. Most people are describing this environment as VUCA, which means that there's a lot of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And while common, common sense would typically di dictate that, you know, the high, uh, initiatives that offer higher risk would also offer higher expected returns, organizations generally would tend to favor these initiatives. And risk management is a key component um, for corporate innovation to increase their chance of success. But often what you, what you find happen is, is your, your, your decision makers would, would, not feel, would, not feel, uh, would not like to take accountability or responsibility for a failed project. Which typically means that you know, they would focus a lot more on managing it or increasing the technical chance of success or commercial viability. And what often tends to happen is when new ideas are assessed, uh, those opportunities tend to also be narrowly defined. Um, and many of the initiatives that then do gain approval are the ones that are, that are usually low risk and generally also offer you know, low returns, which, is, which would typically be like your incremental improvements that do little more to then increase your market share. But the key thing is that it must drive value creation. So, so as, a, as, you know, as, as people 
within within the profession, we we really should start focusing on the upside potential of the risk rather than only focusing on risk mitigation. Looking at co-creation and how we partnership and leverage different skills and strengths as we're going through any of, of the value, value creation. Now moving on to the innovation challenges and obstacles, um, they're typically grouped into these four main categories, namely risk and finance, knowledge, both within and um, outside of the organization and regulations. Um, as I mentioned, you know, uh, most people would have described having a lack of capital as a key constraint, um, or, or, or you know, the, the, your initiative has too much excessive perceived risk. Um, you know, you would also then focus on the payoff periods. Then, within the organisation, it would it would deal with cultural aspects. So, is there resistance to change? Do you have the right skilled staff within your organisation? The technologies and the infrastructure that you're running. And outside of the organization, it's also how, how does one collaborate within or cooperate within different, different um, you know, across different stakeholders. And the technologies that exist, so it might also be quite, quite hard to outsource something, you know, outside of the organization. And last but not least is also regulations. So, you, you know, there could be possible barriers to entry that are set up within a specific market. Um, or the legislative, you know, the legislative, the norms, the standards make it quite difficult uh, to, to enter that market. When we were looking at, our, at the feedback from the different respond respondents, culture, resources, and capital came up as the first, uh, you know, as, as some of the, main, some of the main, main impediments or challenges to innovation. Interestingly, risk management and governance were not cited as key impediments or challenges to innovation, which could mean that, you know, perhaps these were rather perceived barriers rather than actual barriers to innovation. I will now be moving on to the different contextual attributes within um, that support that support the innovation process, namely cultures, resources, and structures. When looking at culture, uh, we looked across these these main categories. Uh, you know, in terms of bureaucracy and uh, bureaucracy and risk aversion, most respondents actually said that there is, that that their companies were not bureaucratic. Where only 29%. Um, you know, gave an affirmative response. But a lot of, but, but quite a lot of respondents actually said that they found their, um, their companies to be quite risk averse, where almost half of them, you know, said that, that said this. So, you know, some of the, some of the, some of the quotes that, that were mentioned was, um, you know, their organization's not bureaucratic because they've, they've been continued, they've continually been innovative or they're not scared to try new things. When looking at, the, at innovation as a learning process, it recognizes the fact that no new model or you know, idea is perfect from the start. You would normally try to improve it you know, either through small changes as you're getting, getting um, you know, post, post a product launch, but also based on feedback that you receive from your customers when they start using your product or service. But it's also important that you start taking corrective measure as quickly as possible 
Um, and some actually argue that you can take corrective measure if smaller steps are taken rather than jumping ahead and taking quite big steps in one go. But often what you find is, is especially in the case of large organizations, um, they definitely don't want to destroy their reputation or brand um, within that. So quite, quite often they would either set up, um, you know, set up their, their innovation efforts through another company completely um, so that, you know, they can actually try something and if that fails, it doesn't have a big reputation impact on that, on that organization. So, you know, some people actually felt that this iterative approach should rather, you know, be left outside the organization than inside the organization, or it should move to a much more perfect state before you actually go through to a product launch. But the key thing is that, is that innovation is not just about the learning itself, but also how you overcome or deal with failure and treat it as the learning opportunity. And often they would argue that it could be dealt with quite philosophically. So, you know, where it's a given that there is going to be some, some innovative ideas that fail or that would not come through to fruition. But, 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 but what, what did come out quite strongly when dealing with failure is that, is that leaders should allow their, their resources to make, their staff to make mistakes, obviously within, 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 reasonable, within reasonable measure. But the key thing is when you're dealing with failure, you should have quick decision making to take corrective measure. You should empower, empower your staff to take decisions by actively encouraging mistakes. And a culture that is accepting of failure allows for it to be viewed as an opportunity that it can recover quite quickly from a situation. And last but not least is resistance to change. There was an overwhelming view that that innovation is considered as a learning process, but the majority found, or 86% found, that there was actually resistance to change in their organization. Um, one of the CEOs actually, actually um, described an organization like an organism. So any organism, like an organization, always resists change. You have to be aware of that resistance to change. It is always there, it is human nature. But the key thing is, is you, the key themes that emerge from this is to ensure that you have the right leadership in place, um, the right communication, and you are getting buy-in to any, any particular idea. When moving on to structures, now they could be both formal or informal structures, um, in both across management structures as well as organizational structures. Respondents describe some formal, formal committees such as your EXCOs or your management committees. Um, others describe specialized functions like your legal teams, your risk teams, your compliance teams. And also, um, you know, different organizations have set up their ways, they have set up themselves in terms of how they deal with innovation, whereas some organizations would have teams that would typically run with innovation activities, whereas others decentralize it and democratize it within the organization that an idea can actually come from anywhere. Or there could just be you know, key, key champions that would spearhead some of, some of those initiatives. But the key thing that came out is was irrespective of which mechanism you adopted or used, um, the, the important thing is that 
there should be accessibility to the forums with quick decision making in there. Also, how you communicate and the, you know, the corridor talk or informal socialization within that organization needs to be actively encouraged. When looking at organizational structures, most respondents, or 43%, actually described their structures as hierarchical. Um, some of the positives that, that they mentioned with the hierarchical structure is that it was focused and had clear reporting lines. Um, and it provided quite good governance once an idea has been conceived. Some of the other disadvantages is that, you know, maybe, maybe some of your employees might not be equipped, um, you know, at the different levels within, within the organization. Other respondents described either having a flat structure with, but still again with clear reporting lines and accountability, but only one respondent described working in a matrix, matrix structure which either, which encouraged collaboration to create better ideas and solve problems together. The key thing that comes out of that is despite the fact of which structure an organization approached, again the thing is that there is quick decision making. That, that comes in in order to, to, to reach your, your innovation activities. A number of, uh, a number of, of uh, three of the organizations that were interviewed also described having separate innovation hubs. And I also had the opportunity to go to some of these, these innovation hubs. They, you know, they, they would have either been set up as a separate um, you know, unit within, within the organization or even outside of the organization. Um, and, and within that, it would be a very, very different culture. So they would use vibrant colors. Sometimes they would have suites within, within, within that. But it really is trying to create that innovative culture within, the, within that organization. Four organizations also mentioned having or considering setting up venture capital agreements or a separate innovation, innovation unit. And the reason that they cited for this is that the culture would not change if they set it up inside of the business. Looking at the last contextual attribute of resources or staff, um, it, this recognizes that organizations must allocate its resources in an increasingly uncertain and changing environment. And we, then, we, then we ask the question of, does your organization have organizations, organizational slack or spare capacity? And you can think of this as effectively like a buff, buffer or cushion um, in terms of how you would allocate resources, capital, or expenditure, as well as time. Um, and are they you know, being completely utilized? When asked this question, there was actually an equally split view of of you know whether whether organizations had um, spare capacity, some actually viewed this in negative light. Um, you know where they mentioned that time is actually a precious commodity. Others mentioned that it might also depend about on who you ask in the organization. So, for example, some departments could have built up excess capacity, while others um, you know others others are working you know quite lean and efficiently. But what, what stood out for me is that most organizations, or highly innovative organizations, did not feel that they had um, spare capacity um, compared to organizations you know, with a medium or low, low sense of, um, of innovation. What, what also came across it was less about whether you had spare capacity or not, but rather how you prioritize that spare capacity. 
and how you channel your, your resources into achieving the strategic objectives of the company. And one of the, and one of the respondents also of a technology company mentioned that, so I wouldn't necessarily call that spare capacity. I would call that prioritization of capacity rather. We definitely have prioritization of capacity. I think any organization that says they have spare capacity to do stuff is probably doing something wrong. We don't necessarily just have people sitting around doing nothing, waiting for somebody to bring an idea and then push it into a process. I would change it to prioritization, yes. Is there a constraint with regard to getting certain ideas through the process given resource constraints? Absolutely. Do we mitigate our risk in that regard? For sure. So this is quite important in terms of how you would actually allocate your resources and prioritize certain initiatives over others. Then moving on to human capital, it comes as no surprise that all organizations said that human capital is an enabling factor for innovation. And this, was, this view was actually differentiated between both the ideation and the implementation um, stage of innovation, where you know, an, an, an individual could naturally just come up with an idea, but the harder part is getting, you know, getting, it, um, getting it implemented. One of the CEOs of the, of, of the, com of the companies that I, that I interviewed said that, argued that human capital is not an enabling factor, it is an essential factor, it is the only factor. And this is one of the most important um, aspects of a successful organization because this is a real, because the real strength of that organization lies in its people. We also then ask the question of stakeholder theory compared to agency theory. So stakeholder theory recognizes that you should balance um, tensions within your organization and get views from multiple different stakeholders. And how you actually deal and mediate um, mediate that process. Agency theory, however, advocates that um, you know, managers would possibly only pursue their personal interests, um, which is contrary to the view of shareholder preferences to maximize their personal utility functions. So this could either be in the sense of you know, their earnings, their position, or their power. But the key thing is that you know, the, the key emerging themes related to collaboration, and this could be small things like even how close you sit um, to the people or the different departments that you need to engage with. Um, or it could be socialization of ideas and concepts. You know, do you have a lot of open communication across you know, news breaks or you know, different, types of, different types of medium within the various teams and across different functions? Do you set up your innovation teams as cross-functional teams from a you know, variety of different departments and different skills? Do you choose to partner and co-create with other, with other um, bodies? And how do you actually and actively avoid silos within your organization? Which ultimately leads to the innovation man management model and how everything then comes together. So as I mentioned, um, the, you would initially have started with your ideation sources um, described in the ideation phase. And the final approach, uh, the, the final shape of this process re really represents that there's a whole bunch of ideas in the initial phase of the innovation process. But as these ideas get refined and narrowed down um, 
which is represented by the funnel as it goes through the implementation and evaluation phase, you really start getting, um, you know, you, you really start understanding what exactly you're trying to deliver in that innovation initiative. But, but the key thing is that the, is, is your risk management and governance actually then starts playing a much more important role as, it, as you go through that process. So you wouldn't want to restrict your ideas um, too early on, but your risk management and governance does become far more stringent and there's more controls and limits and delegation authorities as you start going through the process. And last but not least, it also needs to take into account the iterative nature of that process, that you should be you know, evaluating and, and, and looking at the multiple decision, proce decision points within, within that process. And this is also supported by the, by the contextual attributes. Um, so, for example, business leaders must pay special attention to culture, creating that autonomy, that creativity, um, you know, that would, that would allow for these attributes of quick decision-making, empowerment, having a learning process, and being able to, to um, kill ideas quite quickly and recovering quite, quite fast from that. From a structured perspective, again, it doesn't matter whether you are hierarchical um, or flat or matrix organization, but that you actually can make decisions quite quickly and, you know, the number the number of um, you know, either the different committees you have to get approvals from um, or how you would socialize those ideas become quite critical. And then from a resource perspective, it's, or, or from a staff perspective, the attributes is about how you prioritize your resources to achieving strategic objectives of that organization and allocate, allocate that, but also recognizing that there should be collaboration and diversity in terms of skill sets. So to conclude, I would really like to ask all of you to think about, are we setting up ourselves in a way that we really recognize um, our risk and governance in the context of the innovation processes? Um, do we allow our, our organizations to innovate as they should be um, in, in an easy way possible? And when we compare ourselves to some of the global players, uh, such as the likes of Google and Facebook, is this, you know, are we actually gearing up ourselves for the 21st century where they have a very different model in terms of how they, how they look at innovation? And I'm going to end with a quote by Peter Drucker who would be considered a father of modern management. Managing innovation will increasingly become a challenge to management and especially to top management and a touchstone of its competence. Thank you very much. I'm happy to take any questions from you. Thank you, Pramol. Um, we've got about seven minutes for questions. Um, if we have any questions from the floor, there's a few roaming mics floating around. There's a question there in the back, back right. Hi. My, my question is, in those companies that had set up specific innovation hubs as separate from their business, 
what was the perception or did you talk to people who weren't part of the innovation hub and how did they perceive kind of the elite that get to play with the, the fancy nice toys? Um, I did actually, I, 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 the, the people I spoke to were within the innovation hub and uh, and one of the key things, uh, I mean, one of the interviews that stood out for me, um, initially I, I approached one of the organizations and met with, um, with you know, one of their leaders within, within the innovation teams, but they were, act they were actively trying to create this collaboration between their, their, you know, their risk management counterparties, and this person actually extended the invites to, to their counterparty to try and get this collaboration going. Um, so I think it's largely related to how I think the organization itself perceives that innovation hub. Um, again, as I mentioned, uh, it's how you allocate your resources to achieving strategic objectives. If the organization you know, truly values that innovation hub and holds the people accountable into delivering on initiatives, it actually becomes quite a fruitful exercise to recognize the value. The key thing that, that I think organizations struggle with is you know, sometimes within those innovation hubs, you might actually be killing your existing business um, while you're starting to grow up a new business, and that is a tough call to make. Um, but 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 you really start have to start observing the external trends that are going on into the environment. Um, you know, people often describe examples such as BlackBerry or Kodak, where they were very well aware of um, you know what the what the trends trends were in the market, but they failed to realize it mostly because of the internal politics within their organization. Okay, we've got a question here at the front. Uh, thanks, Ramal, for the presentation. Um, of the respondents that you interviewed, um, how many, in fact, what proportion were African and how important uh, was innovation in those organizations? That's the first. And on the overall, uh, did you find that the innovation was largely exploratory or uh, exploitative? Um, so, with the respondents, I, I, I managed to interview 14 different organizations, and 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 uh, you know, quite a, I, I'm not I'm not 100% sure of the exact numbers um, that describe them as you know either highly innovative because I started spitting it out, um, but but when we're looking at the share of voice, it's not it's looking at the actual word count within the transcripts. So, so it gives quite a credible view of a sense of how much time someone tends to focus or spend on a particular idea. And then if you, can, if I, if you don't, if I don't mind you asking, if you can just quickly repeat your second question. Well, the second was, was innovation largely exploratory or exploitative? So in other words, were they trying to improve existing, improving on existing uh, processes or were they looking at other ways of doing so, so uh, initially, when I mentioned, I kept the definition of innovation quite broad for the purposes of this research. In some circumstances, it could actually be, um, you know, exploratory or it could be exploitative. But I wasn't too prescriptive of which method um, I would, I, you know, I would have preferred because different organisations had um, different means. For example, if if I'm looking at an industry, um, you know, in, in the mining sector, for example, they would typically look at incremental type of innovation um, compared to complete disruptive innovation. 
but within that, within within that, you know, I think most organisations actually tended to to have a portfolio of different um, initiatives. So they would have in some set of incremental initiatives. Often they would focus quite a number, you know, have quite a quite a quite a uh, large variety of initiatives within that space. Um, then they would have far fewer, um, you know, disruptive innovation um, initiatives with. With, with that would typically be associated with much greater risk as well. Last over here. Hi, Vikas. Hi, Prema. So, within an, as an enterprise risk management team or function, and given how the board would have defined a risk strategy and how the risk committee needs to have oversight over this in the organization, and if you look at how frequently these risk committees meet, about quarterly, do we need a redesign of an enterprise risk management function so that we can partner with the reward part of that coin you showed us? I mean, do you jump in as soon as a, a, an idea is mentioned? Do you wait for an approval process to check if this idea fits with your risk profile? How often do you then refresh your risk profile I'm a bit uh, unsure there. Um, that, that's a very good question. I think I think with any of the any of the structures or you know the um, the way you choose to set up your organisation, the key thing is that it needs to be set up in a manner that um, you know that that's most effective. Uh, within that within that organisation structure, so in a sense that you know, does it does it allow for for quick decision making? Um, often, what tends to happen is if it becomes legislated, um, you know that then a, a legislated or it becomes a regulation that could move at a slower pace than where the world's moving at. Um, but over time, you know, naturally regulations would tend to would tend to also, um, you know, allow for that. So, so you know, as your strategic objectives of your company changes, ideally you should also be changing your risk management practices um, to deal with that and be at the best, um, you know, be at the be adopting the best practice, not even within um, your industry, but possibly looking at global um, best practices. Um, within any within within any risk management um, teams and functions, the key thing that you're also trading off is you know balancing the costs versus the benefits of doing of doing that, um, because as you start introducing you know more processes or practices that you put in place to prevent risks, um, you could actually also then start increasing, for example, operation risks, um, and you know there could even be an exponential um, increase in the amount of costs. Um, as you start, as you start, uh, you know, putting in more of your risk management. So I think the key thing is that there does need to be an effective balance between that, and also focusing on the main risks that your company is a, is is trying to trying to address. Yeah. So if I could maybe add to that, just in closing, I think we heard earlier today on the theme of relevance, and I think that's where the profession and actuaries operating in the field of risk management's probably got a role to play, because what I picked up from the results. Um, that we saw today is that the most innovative firms talk about risk because they understand risk. I mean, the best innovators out there are not ignorant to risk. They maybe have a higher tolerance than others, but they're not ignorant to it. The problem comes in as soon as risk management gets perceived or experienced as undue governance and bureaucracy, that becomes a challenge. And I think as a profession, we possibly have a role to play there. So, well, the, 
the traditional thinking of a risk and control environment is not too far removed from the concept of risk management that your innovators have in mind and actually bridging that gap um, and, and from that bringing um, efficiency and productivity to the, to the process of innovation. So, but our time is up. Um, if we can just ask everyone just from all, thank you again for the, for the informative session. Well done. And um, we have 10 minutes changeover time. The good news is you don't have to go anywhere. Everyone else is coming here for the 3 o'clock closing plenary. Thank you, everybody.